0: I, too, greet you tonight in the precious name of Jesus. It's a privilege again to be gathered together. And I enjoyed the singing. We sang that song, Nearer, Still Nearer. And that was meaningful to me in more than one way. But I thought about this, too. As the evenings have gone on, you have becoming nearer and nearer to me. You keep coming up front farther, and this is good. That's a good sign. I, too, enjoyed the uh, thoughts that Brother Owen shared. Our Father knows what we need, and uh, encourage me in what the Lord has laid on my heart tonight. I invite you tonight to the book of James chapter 1. Our Father knows that we need to be revived. Our Father knows that we need to draw nearer to Him. And I believe we've been experiencing that this week. We are setting a goal. I'm setting a goal for myself that I would be revived every night, and I hope that you are too. The Word of God is coming into our hearts and moving us and changing us. And, you know, friends, when we open our hearts to the Word of God It can literally change our lives forever. It is powerful. And I trust tonight we can experience that again. James chapter 1. I want to use this scripture here to direct us to the subject. This is not my subject tonight, but I'm going to use it to take us there. In chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. He says, Blessed is a man that endures temptation. And so that's the idea of there of, so, of more than just existing, more than just uh, watching, uh, but it's standing in the test. I think that word there, when he has tried, it means that when he has been proved that he has passed the test and he's still standing, the, the devil has tempted him, but he has, he's passed the test. And there he is, he's moving on, living in victory. And he says, when, he, when you do that, then we can receive the crown of life. And that is the ultimate goal, to not just to get to heaven, but to be with Jesus and to take as many people along with us as we can. And then he says in verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Brothers and sisters tonight, when temptation to sin comes to us, it does not come from God. I like this verse. God cannot be tempted with evil. He, God, will never fall to temptation, ever. Neither does He want us to. God never wants us to sin. He doesn't tempt us to sin. He permits trials to come into our life only so that we can become stronger. But he does not entice us to evil. God is a holy God. His plan, his work on this earth, is to redeem men and women from sin. It would be contrary to the whole plan of God to tempt us to sin. He came to relieve us of sin, to save us from sin, to destroy sin. Then, verse fourteen. But what every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, entice and enticed. The problem here. As we read these verses, we understand there's a spiritual battle that's going to go on, does go on, is going on. And the problem, the weak area in this spiritual battle is our own lust, our desires, our carnality. That's what gets us into trouble. That's the problem area. And the failure in temptation is a result of our own thoughts and desires. See, God, you know, the old, uh, God doesn't make us do it. And you drive down the road and you see on the back, bumpers of trucks and cars, whatever, the devil made me do it. That is not true. That's not, a lie. that's not true. That's a lie. And if we fall in sin, it's a result of our own thoughts and desires. And that's what gets us into trouble. An example would be Adam and Eve. You know, when they were in the Garden of Eden, they were tempted by Satan, not by God, and they saw this fruit, whatever it was, an apple, orange, I don't know what it was, but they saw it, and it looked good and it probably smelled good, and they were convinced that it was going to taste good, and beside all that, it was the forbidden thing, and somehow our carnal nature loves to do what is forbidden. You know that? Yeah, what we're not allowed to have is what we want, carnality. And so they partook of this thing. Lust of the flesh. And then he says in verse 15, Then when lust hath conceived... It bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So when lust is conceived, conceived, or when the desire is there, and it is not checked, it is not erased, it is not taken away, but it just follows through, it gives birth to sin. It is not sin to be tempted, but it is sin to follow through and not stop it and to participate in it. And so it gives birth to sin. And it says, very plain to hear that sin, when it is finished, friends tonight, sin has an end. That story I gave the children tonight illustrated when it is finished. And you know what? The devil is a well—he's a liar, and so all his advertisements are a lie. But he's super good at advertising sin as something beautiful. He never advertises the end. He never shows you what the end looks like. Because it's terrible. He has nothing to offer us, friends. Absolutely nothing to offer us. And so there is an end to sin that's always different than what it looks like to start with. Sin, when it is finished, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. It says in verse 16, Do not err. My beloved brethren, God doesn't want us to err in sin. And there's a verse in Romans, you don't have to turn to this, but in Romans six twelve, I believe it is, it says, let not sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it to the lust thereof. It is deadly, friends. We don't want us to be a part of us. And God says, don't err, brethren. God, the good father, as Brother Owen was sharing tonight, has given us tools to fight the battle. What are these verses I just read are a spiritual battle that we all fight. And God, our good father, has given us tools that we can fight this battle. Tonight, I would like to look at a tool. Now, Tim has this tool. And Stanton has this tool. And Mark has this tool. And this young lady, sitting way on the right on the front bench, has this tool. Now while you mull that over, let me take you somewhere else. I have never bought a brand new car. I've never walked into a car dealership and said, here you are, here's my checkbook, I want to write out a check and buy a brand new car. I've never done that. But I understand that if you do that, that you can order what you want. You can order accessories or upgrades to this car, and so you could order a uh, I don't know if power, lo- power windows and power locks are still an upgrade or not, but you can order a cruise control or a sunroof or heated seats or a dual climate control or a backup camera and probably a lot of other things. And young, young people sitting out here tonight, you young men and you young women, you don't remember this, but there was a time that if you ordered a brand new car, you had the option of ordering power brakes and power steering, right? Anybody remember that? Sure. You young people don't know what that's like. What do you mean? Yeah, cars used to not have power steering. You will, uh, uh, yeah, uh-huh, or power brakes. Now that's standard stuff, but you could order it as an upgrade. So what if I went to your local dealer, and I don't know what the name of your local dealer is, but let's say I walked into your local dealer, and I walked up to his desk, and I would slap my checkbook down on his table, and I'd say, Mr. Dealer, I want to order me a brand new SUV. And he would say, all right, Mr. Troyer, what do you want on it? And I would say, sir, I want a steering wheel. And his mouth would drop open probably, and he'd say, what? Where did you what planet did you just drop off of? What, what bush country did you just come from? Where have you been? I want to tell you, Mr. Troy, I've got 500 vehicles out here, and every one of them has a, st- has a steering wheel because it is standard equipment. It comes with every one of them. The tool that I'm talking about tonight is standard equipment. It comes with every human being. There's not one of you tonight that does not have it, a steering wheel. I invite you to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 5, now the end of the commandment is charity, out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned. So the essence, if I can paraphrase paraphrase this verse, the essence of being a real Christian, and you might wonder why I use that term real Christians, you've probably heard me say that several times, I know a lot of people profess to be Christians, and it's easy to say, I am a Christian. But I believe that there is a, pr- a difference between a professing Christian and a real Christian. And I was encouraged some years ago, Cam, uh, Cam Ministries out of Berlin, Ohio, they do the billboard thing. And they, they started using a lot of billboards that say, real Christians forgive, or whatever it is. And now they've changed it to genuine Christians forgive. And I like that word, too. And so the essence of being a genuine Christian is to have a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. All right? Verse 18 and 19, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. He said, Timothy, I want you to fight a good fight. Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience which some have put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. There is a spiritual battle for faith and a good conscience. Chapter 3, verse 9. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. One of the tools of the saving faith is a clear or a pure conscience. This tool that I'm referring to tonight, you probably caught on by now, I'm referring to a conscience. It's a tool that we all have. It's a steering wheel that God has given to all of us. It doesn't matter who you are tonight. As soon as a child gets, I'm not sure what age it kicks in, but they don't have to be very old until their conscience starts working. They have one. The title of the message tonight is, I should tell you this, is Cultivating a Good Conscience. Every one of you tonight has a conscience. Every human being that I know of, I have never yet met a man or woman that doesn't have a conscience. I might tell you about a man later on, uh, about what he said, about his conscience. But we're all born with one. The question tonight is, do you have, do I have a good conscience? That's the question tonight. Now, there's some people that they might say something like this. Well, you know, ah, whatever, you know, my conscience may not be the best, but, you know, I'm a believer. I'm a believer, even though it may not be the best. I am a believer and I'm following Jesus. Well, the Bible says in these verses that are read that having a good conscience has a direct connection to a pure heart and true faith. My friends, tonight, I do not believe that you can be a genuine Christian without having a good conscience. I don't believe that. There is a direct connection there. It is inseparable. And so my encouragement tonight, what I want to encourage you all with tonight is to cultivate, to have a good Conscience, because I believe it is imperative to winning that spiritual battle over sin. Now, if someone tonight would walk up and put their face in my face and say, "Delmer, I want you to explain exactly what a conscience is. I would probably have to answer something like this. I cannot explain exactly God. I cannot explain God exactly. And I don't think anybody else here tonight can either. We cannot exactly explain everything about God. Because if we could, He wouldn't be God. And so I'm glad we can't. There are things about God we can't explain. And so I cannot tell you tonight, that I can exactly explain what the conscience is, but I'm going to give you my best attempt tonight. First of all, as I try to define conscience, I'm going to tell you, first of all, what it is not. It is not the Holy Spirit, but it is clearly connected and designed to be directed by the Holy Spirit. It is not conviction, but closely related to conviction. It is not the standard for truth, but it must be trained by truth. And I'm going to talk more about that later. Conscience. As we use these verses in the Bible here tonight, Strong's would define it like this. Conscience is to understand, to become aware of right and wrong. That's what conscience is, to understand this is right, this is wrong. To be aware of it. Oh, that's what it is. Webster's, and I give Webster's some credit tonight, they say a conscience is a sense of right or wrong with an urge to do right. I kind of like that. That would be a, a at least kind of a good conscience. Someone says that it is the great prosecutor of your soul. In other words, a conscience is that thing inside of us that God put there that when something comes up and I need to make a decision... And when I know that what I want to do is wrong, so wrong is here and right is here, it is that bell that goes off, you know, a siren that goes off, it's a light that flashes, it's it's that thing that says, "Dalmer, don't do it." You know it's wrong. It's something. Put inside of every human being by God to direct us to God. It's a tool, if you want to call it that, to avoid the finished product of sin. It's a steering wheel to take us to God and away from the devil. It is divinely implanted inside of us, designed to be a good conscience. But it can be opposite. So tonight, we have a choice to have either a good conscience or a bad conscience. I want to try to tell you the difference between a good conscience and a bad conscience. A good conscience is directed by the Holy Spirit. It is spiritually healthy. It is sensitive. It is receptive to God's message and God's truth. When we have a good conscience, we love the Word of God. We hunger and thirst after it. We want more of God. We want to draw near to God. And it always steers us to God in holiness. A good conscience will always take us there to God. Always. A bad conscience. Is I use this word liberal. We don't like that word, but that's what it is. It's liberal. That means it is tolerant. It is tolerant of sin and of worldliness. That's a bad conscience. So If I have a conscience that wants to tolerate sin and worldliness, it's no good. It's always progressively worse. And some words we're going to find in the Bible here. A bad conscience is calloused. It is seared. It is defiled. It fails to recognize and to choose right over wrong. It simply cooperates with our carnal flesh. That's what a bad conscience does. It just, okay, Delmer, sure, fine, no problem. That's what a bad conscience does. Friends, situations arise in our life. James said, but. Every man is tempted. So they come to us. They're going to come to us until the trumpet sounds. And I've been telling you this week, we're living on the trumpet side of the ascension. But until we hear that trumpet, we got to watch out for temptations because they come. They're part of life. Situations come. And we are tempted to have wrong attitudes. We're tempted to hold bitterness in our heart or unforgiveness in our heart. We're tempted to say death words, bad words, uh, mean words. Uh, we're tempted to uh, envy people, family, church, whatever. We're tempted to think wrong thoughts. All of us, we're tempted to think the wrong things. We're tempted to look at the wrong things. We're tempted to click on the wrong button or scroll the wrong way. We're tempted to be dishonest, to disobey our parents, to go, go wrong places, to do wrong things. Situations, temptations, but every man is tempted. All those things come to us. And then I hear people say, Like this. Well, let your conscience be your guide. You heard that? Uh Uh-huh. Let your conscience be your guide. Great. If it's a good one. Bad if it's a bad one. And then I hear people say this. Well, I don't have a conscience against it. Oh. Ouch. Hmm. How safe is that? Okay, so I would like if you would look with me tonight at Scripture as it describes a bad conscience. Here in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the later, latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Last times. Brother Jerry said the other night, we're living in the last of the last times. And here's what's happening. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. A conscience that is seared, like with a hot iron, is a bad conscience. That word seared there, according to the Greek, means cauterized. It means a burn tissue with no feeling. Like if you burn your hand and it's got that tissue there, there's no feeling. Or when I work in the summertime and do construction work, i get calluses on my hand, you can take a pin and prick it, there's no feeling. It's calloused, it's seared. And so what that means in the spiritual terms is there's no spiritual pain when you're choosing or participating in wrong, in sin. That's a seared conscience. You can, whatever it is, you can have that bad attitude, and so what? I've done this many times before. It doesn't even hurt. Titus chapter 1. A few pages on back. Titus chapter 1. 15. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, that in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. Him. These two verses are a sorry, sorry description of a human being. I mean, they are gone. Even their mind and their conscience is defiled. That word defiled there means contaminated. It is, I mean, it is poisoned. This thing cannot be trusted. There's there's so much truth gone from it. It will not work. Defile. And then Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 17. This I say, therefore... And testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance of, that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto a lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now he doesn't use the word conscience here, but he uses the words past feeling. That's Friends, you know what that is? That is a dead conscience. No feeling. Nothing. Dead. Doesn't work. I mean, they are blinded. They just keep right on going the wrong way because there is no feeling there. Nothing. There, it is, it, it doesn't work. It's like an alarm clock that doesn't go off. It's rusted fast. Nothing happens. Dead conscience. I had, okay, this is what I'm going to tell you. I had a man come up to me one time after I preached, I think it was a Sunday morning message, and he came up and he put his finger right up by my nose and he said, Marone, I want to tell you, he said, my conscience is burned. All I got left is ashes. As terrible, friends. And he's still living in those ashes today. Nothing. He had sinned so many times, he didn't even think about it. So I have to warn you, my brothers and sisters, tonight, a bad conscience puts you in a dangerous, dangerous position. You don't want to be there. And I'll also warn you tonight that a half a conscience is not good. It's not good. And as I look at some of these Bible terms that we have here, a seared conscience and past feeling, you know, that's a conscience that, that no longer responds to truth. It just doesn't. Because the reason it doesn't respond to truth is because it has says yes to sin over and over and over again. That's why it's past feeling. That's why it's dead. It's done it so often. And then when it is represented with a choice to choose something right, there's no prompting there to do right. It's used to wrong. It enjoys wrong. It's a terrible place to be in. A place where there's no prompting coming from within from a good conscience. You know, a defiled conscience, Titus talked about, uh, half bad, you know, some truth there, but half not so good, uh, poison with a bad, undependable, you know, having a half conscience is as bad a good as having a steering wheel that works about half the time. Ever think about that? You know, if my wife says, "Honey, I want to run to town," I'm going to jump in the caravan and go to town. I need to go to Walmart and Sam's Club and uh, whatever it is. I say, "Oh, honey, I want to make sure I tell you that the steering wheel, when you turn right, it only works about half the time. So be careful." We wouldn't do that. That ends in disaster. We know that. And yet, friends, how can we think, possibly, that we can go through spiritual life, the spiritual battle that we're fighting, and we can have a half a conscience, and somehow we're going to come out alright without crashing. It doesn't work. Tonight, I want to show you an example in the Bible of a good conscience. You turn me to Genesis chapter 39. Here is a Beautiful story. Bible example of a good conscience. Genesis 39, verse 1. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the garden, Egyptian, brought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he made him an overseer in his house, and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. And it came to pass, after these things, that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused, and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house? And he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business. And there was none other of the men in the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Here is a story of a young man. And I don't know exactly tonight how old he was. I can't tell you that. But I can tell you a little about his history and his time leading up to this. Here was a man that you could say came out of a troubled family situation. I mean, there was, there was not always peace in the family. His siblings didn't really like him. And they, yeah, there was not a good situation there. And eventually, you know, his brothers got rid of him. We know the whole story. And he got sold as a slave into a foreign country. Here he is, a slave. Joseph, a man that was away from his home. He was away from mom and dad. He was away from the church. He was away from the godly youth group. There was nothing there to encourage him in the Lord. Nothing to to encourage him to be faithful. There was nothing there. But Joseph is an example of a man that had a good conscience. His conscience wasn't seared. It wasn't calloused. It wasn't defiled or poisoned or half-working. He had a steering wheel that worked 100% of the time. And it is so beautiful. I love this story. Here's a man, a young man that the forces of hell came crashing down on tremendous temptation. He withstood that temptation. The siren went off. The lights were flashing. The bells were ringing. They were saying, Joseph, don't do it. It's wrong. And it steered him away from the wrong, and he ran out the house because he had a good conscience. I think tonight we would all desire to have a conscience like that. And so we ask the question, how do we cultivate a good conscience like Joseph? The first thing I would say in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. You know what that means? That means that Joseph had a heart for God. His heart was given to God. Joseph had made a personal commitment, like we talked last night, to be. He was on the offense, and he made a personal commitment to holiness. He was going to be a man that was holy, like his holy God. He had made a personal choice. He had a hunger and thirst for righteousness. He thought right about God. Verse 9 proves that. He said, how can I do this and sin against God? His thoughts about God were right. The most important thing about you, my friend, tonight is what you think about God. He had trained his conscience to truth. I believe that previous to this battle that we just read about here, a spiritual battle, Joseph had made a lifetime practice of choosing right. I don't believe this is the first time he resisted temptation in his life. His conscience was sharp. It was clear. It was healthy. It was used to choosing right. He was a man that did choose right. And so when temptation came, his conscience immediately kicked in. The lights went off. The sirens screamed and the the bells were whistling. And he had that strong urge to choose right. My friends tonight... I want to tell you something, and don't forget this. You don't wait until you're in the heat of the battle. You don't wait until Potiphar's wife's face is in front of you to cultivate a good conscience. That's not when you start cultivating a good conscience. You better have it made before. I can tell you how to ruin a good conscience. Just feed it excuses. Someone compared it to this. It's like giving sleeping pills to your watchdog. (laughs) Giving sleeping pills to your watchdog. Feed your conscience excuses. It'll do the same thing. Put it right to sleep. Let's not do that, friends. Let's cultivate a good conscience. Let's make it a habit. Let's practice choosing truth and obedience. Have it trained by the Word of God. Ask God to direct your conscience to truth. And by the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, invite the Holy Spirit and place your conscience in the hand of the Holy Spirit, as it were, and walk side by side. Maybe the best way to explain it is the way Paul said it. Listen to what he said in acts twenty four sixteen Paul said, "And herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and man. In other words, the amplified would say it this way and herein do I discipline myself, I deaden my carnal affections that's how you have a good conscience. you know you 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 have to deaden the carnal affections. You got to stop feeding them. You got to starve it to have a good conscience. My friend tonight, do you have a good conscience? Or do you have a conscience that simply cooperates with your carnal nature? I don't know your conscience tonight. Only you and God do. That's it. But if you're here tonight and your conscience is seared, defiled, or weak, or rusty, you're at the right place. There's a powerful scripture in Hebrews chapter 9. If you would turn with me there yet, one verse. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Oh, friends, tonight, how much more the blood of the cross So what he says, the blood of Christ, the cross. I love to preach about the cross. The blood of the cross. We go to that cross and there we find forgiveness for our sins. The big old chunk of sins we're carrying on our pack and we kneel at the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. And we leave that Golgotha Hill as a new man, a new woman. But friends tonight, the blood of the cross. It's also the blood that purges our dead conscience. If we get into a spot where our conscience is dead and it's got dead spots in it, rusty parts, God's word says you go to the cross and it's the blood that cleanses that conscience from its dead works. It's, part, it's spots that don't work and they can be freed up and be renewed. Oh well, friends, it's the blood. It's still the blood. I love the old-fashioned song that says, It is still the blood. It's still the blood that cleanses from the sin. It's still the blood that brings victory within. From the highest star in heaven to the depth of the sea, it's the blood of Jesus that brings victory to me. God says, I'll purge your dead conscience. We can have our conscience renewed to have a model like Joseph had. By His blood and His Holy Spirit. You know, I would say tonight, young people, if dating is in your future, you must have a conscience that is sharp, sensitive, that works. I would say to you, moms and dads, tonight, we're living in a high pressure society. We're living living in a messed up world. We need to have a conscience that is sharp. I would say to all of us tonight that are affected with technology and have technology in our life, which is all of us, we are only one click away from online adultery and fornication. We better have a conscience that is sharp and working. Friend, if you're here tonight and you have a good conscience, praise God, glory, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. If you're here tonight, God has spoken to your heart. You got a dead spot in your conscience. God is making you an offer tonight. He says, I will purge or cleanse those dead spots in your conscience if you give it to me by the power of his blood and the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Father, I come to you tonight. Thank you for your word. We thank you for this tool that you put inside of us. It's a gift from you, Father. We recognize tonight that it can it's designed to be good and it's beautiful. And sometimes we don't understand that. We don't care enough about it and it becomes bad and seared, and poisoned, and rusty, and weak. And Lord, you're the only one here, you're the only one tonight that knows our hearts and what our consciences look like. You and us are the only ones that know. If there's anybody here tonight that you have spoken to their heart, and they have a need in their life, and they would like to have their conscience purged from dead words, pray you would give them courage to acknowledge that. We know that you will cleanse it and that we can have a conscience that you designed to be